I'm very pleased to welcome you to a Sydney Ideas event which is co-sponsored by the Human Animal Research Network and the Marie Bashir Institute for Infectious Disease and Biosecurity. Uh, tonight we're going to have a, I thought it was framed as a trial, but I guess it's more accurately described as an informed debate about mosquitoes and whether we should actually value mosquitoes as a treasured item of our ecology and our heritage or whether we're just better off without them altogether. Culturally, uh, mosquitoes don't do too well. As I spent the best part of half an hour yesterday typing in the word mosquitoes, and this is pretty much what happens when you type the word mosquitoes into Google Scholar, sorry, into Google and hit images. You just get pictures of various depraved insects who have certain traits which we could say are anthropomorphised from being a bloodthirsty, uh, almost addicted creature which is chasing around for blood through to the ever-present and argument-losing argument that they are actually akin to Nazis and therefore in some way or other pure evil. Of course, we also have the Australian mosquito and in our culture, mosquitoes, and Cameron is probably going to say something a little bit different to this, but are essentially just an annoyance. They're things that show up at barbecues uninvited and pretty much just make you want to them to leave or you to uh, attack and destroy them as quickly and as humanely as possible, humanely for you. Recently, it's become apparent that mosquitoes are actually far more important in terms of human health dimensions than we've led to believe. Obviously, malaria is a large killer, and I again think Angus and both Cameron will allude to this, but the Zika virus outbreak over the last few years has had a global dimension and has drawn attention once again to the potential for mosquitoes to cause human misery and suffering. So, the question then is, as Cameron will probably say, is this the most dangerous creature on the planet, or should we look slightly broader and maybe towards our own species. Are they something that is precious and should be kept or are they essentially something which has a cartoonish dimension, which is anyway evil. Hi, Agata. So, without further ado, I'll explain the format for tonight. We have three speakers lined up, one to present a case against mosquitoes, another to, to basically present a case in defence of mosquitoes, and then an ethicist to sit on the fence and basically wave their hands in both directions. Our panellists are Dr Cameron Webb, who is the Principal Hospital Scientist and Clinical Lecturer at Pathology West. Uh, he's a medical entomologist, and fairly well he's Dr Mosquito in these parts of the world, both in terms of his scientific output and also his social media advocacy. He's currently working on a range of projects examining how mosquito populations are adapting to and being affected by urban change, and climate change in coastal New South Wales. And he's making the case for mosquitoes, which I suspect is probably, sorry, against mosquitoes, which I think was probably the easiest job in the room tonight. Opposing Cameron is Associate Professor Tess Lee, who is a cultural anthropologist and Chair of Gender and Cultural Studies here at the University of Sydney. She is the author of several highly acclaimed books and she is currently pursuing ethnographic research across housing infrastructure, community development and education domains to explore the basic question, can there be good social policy for regional and remote Australia? She has previously worked as a senior bureaucrat in the Northern Territory Departments of Health and Education and also worked as a ministerial advisor in this capacity. 
Crucially for us, putting all these amazing achievements to one side, she's also born and bred in Darwin. So she has quite an experience of mosquitoes, both immersive and through her scholarly and empirical research. And through this, she's developed a fondness for these little things, which we'll draw on to defend them tonight. Finally, Professor Angus Dawson, who is the director of the Centre for Values, Ethics and Law and Medicine, which is a stellar institute within this university at the School for Public Health, uh, is here to basically provide a neutral case and perhaps to provide us with some information on how we might think through these issues. Angus's background is philosophy, but he is specialised in teaching uh, ethics and philosophy to medical students over the last 15 years. He is widely recognised as one of the world's leading figures in public health ethics and he's been involved in ethics and policy work for a number of uh, supranational organisations, which I won't mention because it's, it's rather dull. So, without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Cameron, who's going to present 15 minutes of why mosquitoes are evil. Now, I feel like I'm well-placed to talk about mosquitoes. I dare say I've been bitten by more mosquitoes than anybody else in this room. I've spent the last 20 years sloshing about wetlands uh, across Australia trying to chase down mosquitoes and... Uh, Unlike a lot of you, I also fall asleep thinking about mosquitoes as well, uh, trying to get into the mindset of a mosquito, understand why they work. And one of the reasons I do that is, funnily enough, I'm fascinated by mosquitoes. I think they're beautiful, I think they should be respected, and I think that their adaptability to the Australian environment is something to behold. I grew up with an interest in science by watching the world around us on Sunday afternoons. And while it was pretty neat seeing lions and tigers and giraffes, what I really loved were those obscure animals that were able to adapt to all of these crazy ecological niches. And mosquitoes are one of those creatures. They've adapted to every type of habitat you can imagine, from coastal wetlands that are flooded by highly salty waters right through to snowmelt streams in our alpine regions an incredibly diverse and, and fascinating group of animals. But a lot of the time each summer, I spend my time coordinating a way to kill millions of them. Millions of mosquitoes, which again, we have to remember, are Australian native animals. So when, I, when someone asks me at a barbecue what I do, and I say, well, I kill millions of Australian native animals every year, um, the look of horror on their face um, is usually replaced by joy when they realise it's mosquitoes and not uh, koalas or kangaroos. And there's little doubt that mosquitoes have found a, a welcome place in uh, Australian culture. Uh, we've even built a giant mosquito out in the Badlands west of Newcastle uh, as testimony to just how important these mosquitoes are to the local environment. And this is kind of one of the really critical issues that I struggle with, is that mosquitoes are part of uh, the Australian environment. They're food for birds and bats and fish and frogs, but they're not just... Uh, a critical part of the environment. They, have, they reach out from the wetlands into our suburbs and, and cause impacts to humans. And that's one of the things that occupies a lot of my time, the health impacts associated with these mosquitoes. But let's look beyond our shores. And we know that mosquito-borne disease has had a massive impact on the world. And it is true that they're the most dangerous animals on the planet. They kill about half a million people every year but there's about half the world's population that is at risk of one of these mosquito-borne pathogens. There's hundreds and millions of cases of malaria and dengue every year. And while we have historically thought about malaria as being the most significant mosquito-borne disease, dengue is really challenging it now. 
And one of the reasons dengue is kind of posing such an incredible risk is that it's not a sub it's not a disease of the swamps in the rural areas, it's a disease of the cities. And when more people across the world are living in urban centres than ever before, the mosquito that's made a home in our cities is the one which is causing the greatest disease risk. And it's one of the ones that I think a lot about. Now, for those of you who don't fall asleep thinking about mosquitoes every night, uh, the rise of Zika in the last sort of six months or so in our headlines might make you think that there's a new emerging threat in terms of the mosquito-borne disease landscape, but not for those that have studied mosquitoes. Zika is something of a blip on the radar. It causes relatively mild disease and, and has generally over the years been overshadowed by the importance of things like dengue and chikungunya virus and malaria parasites in terms of the public health importance. The link, of course, though, that's ever strengthening between Zika virus and birth defects when pregnant women are infected with the virus is a major cause for the concern. There's no doubt about that. But it's just one of the suite of pathogens spread by mosquitoes in the landscape across the world that makes mosquito researchers think about how we can better reduce the burden of mosquito-borne disease. And once again, Zika virus has brought that to the attention of not just global health authorities in the community, but mosquito researchers as well. And this is where we have to make a very clear delineation between the mosquitoes that are found in these wetland environments and the mosquitoes that are found in our cities. And I think today, the mosquitoes that I'm most thinking about those targeting are those mosquitoes that are found not in our swamps but in our suburbs. Those mosquitoes that have given up a, a life in tree holes and leaf axles that trap water. They've given up on those environments that have moved into our cities. They want to live in our pot plant sources, our drains and gutters, our rainwater tanks, our refuse. Probably the best thing people have done for mosquitoes that live in these types of environments is invent the plastic takeaway food container. When it's discarded, it traps water and creates the perfect opportunity for these mosquitoes. Now we've got plenty of diseases in Australia where we've got to think about ways in which we control mosquitoes. Our homegrown pathogens, things like Ross River virus and Barmer Forest virus, they won't kill you but they'll make you pretty sick. And they make about 5,000 Australians sick every year. And what's really unique about these pathogens is that just like the mosquitoes themselves, they're part of the Australian environment. The mosquitoes don't hatch out of the wetlands carrying these viruses. They have to bite some of our native animals first before they pick up that pathogen. So it's this cycle that involves both our wetlands, our mosquitoes and our wildlife. Things like Ross River virus. So everybody you know that's been diagnosed with Ross River virus disease, they've been bitten by a mosquito that's previously bitten a kangaroo or a wallaby. It's an intrinsic part of the Australian environment that these mosquitoes exist in. But we want to interrupt that. I want to try to stop people getting sick from mosquito bites. And this is when it gets really interesting. One of the reasons we're seeing more mosquito-borne disease is that we're encroaching on our local wetlands. It's not the mosquitoes flying from the swamps into the suburbs. We're bringing the suburbs to the mosquitoes and creating a home for them. We're bumping up against our wetlands and exposing people to mosquitoes and the pathogens they can transmit. But it's not just the mosquitoes that are flying into the suburbs from the wetlands that I'm worried about. It's those mosquitoes that have... Uh, adapted to habitats we're creating, both in our suburbs but more importantly around our home. And while there are thousands of mosquitoes across the world, there's hundreds of mosquitoes in Australia. There's two mosquitoes that I have in my sights that I think that we could do away with that would make the world a better, healthier place. That's the yellow fever mosquito and the Asian tiger mosquito. These are not mosquitoes of the wetlands. These are mosquitoes of old tyres, found in old tyres, plastic buckets, 
rainwater tanks and water that's trapped around the place that we live and work. These are the mosquitoes that I'm most concerned about because not only have they moved into the places where we live, but these are the mosquitoes that most effectively transmit some of the most important mosquito-borne diseases in the world. The yellow fever mosquito transmits almost every mosquito-borne virus you know of. It's the mosquito that's driving the outbreak of Zika virus in South America at the moment. It's the mosquito that's driven outbreaks of chikungunya virus across the Pacific. It's the mosquito that infects anywhere from a dozen to a thousand Australians with dengue fever in far north Queensland every year. Where this mosquito exists, there's a potential for major outbreaks of dengue, chikungunya and Zika virus. Of those 300 or so mosquitoes we've got in Australia, this is the only mosquito found on mainland Australia that can transmit the virus. You remove this mosquito, you remove the potential for an explosive outbreak of disease. You can keep the other 299 mosquitoes in Australia and health risks still will dramatically be reduced. So how do you reduce the burden of disease? You could get rid of the mosquitoes. Now make no mistake of it, we've been trying to get rid of them for a long time. If you go back to the history books, uh, you can see even in, in, in around Sydney we were talking about the eradication of mosquitoes along the Parramatta River by spraying it with kerosene. We used to drain our swamps to reduce the production of mosquitoes. Now we pump tonnes of insecticide into our cities, trying to stop outbreaks of dengue and Zika virus. It's going to kill mosquitoes, but the mosquitoes fight back. They develop resistance to those insecticides and then we start to have to look at new techniques, new ways that we can uh, remove mosquitoes. Genetic modification is something that's coming into focus for uh, mosquito-borne disease around the world. Now some of the work that's been done in the laboratory means that we're now on the cusp of a technology where we might actually be able to eradicate mosquitoes from a local region. Releasing genetically modified males that fly out into the cities, mate with the females, their offspring don't survive. They're using this at the moment in Brazil, trying to experiment with ways that they can reduce the mosquito population so that the disease transmission is reduced. I see no reason into the future there won't be a way in which we can adapt this technology to seriously think about the ways that we could eradicate mosquitoes. And I often think about what, what does that mean then? What if we were able to drive mosquitoes to extinction? I don't want to sign off on the extinction of all mosquitoes on the planet, but we could just pick one mosquito, the yellow fever mosquito. If we could eradicate that, we could dramatically reduce the burden of mosquito-borne disease across the country. Now keep in mind this mosquito is not found in the wetlands, it's found in those uh, water holding containers in our suburbs, in our cities. I'd argue that it plays a very minimal ecological role. It's not found in enough um, abundance to provide adequate food for birds or bats or fish or frogs. It's probably unlikely to pollinate any plants. We can leave that role to the wetland mosquitoes. But if we could eradicate this scourge of our cities, we could dramatically reduce the burden of disease across many of the areas in which people live more and more in the tropical areas of the world. So I'll, I'll leave you with that thought, is that when we talk about eradicating mosquitoes, don't think about eradicating them all. Just think about eradicating one or two, and maybe we'd be better off and live in a safer, healthier world for it. So thanks very much for that, Chris. Yes, um, I blame my students for me not having a PowerPoint because 
oh, you know, they preoccupy me. Um, okay, so yes, I'm the Darwin girl. I come from Darwin, the mosquito capital of the world. Um, I grew up with more than the odd mozzie, have very not fond memories of immediately post-cyclone Tracy, no electricity, sweltering mozzie nets, the choice, be bitten to death or die of heat. You know, so the fondness for mosquitoes isn't a fondness for being bitten and nor is the fondness for their diseases. But researching that book on Darwin, um, I also spent time with the entomologists who are the unsung heroes, really, the frontline soldiers of making places like Darwin habitable. And so this dilemma that they have of how to control mosquito populations for a little while became my dilemma too. I, as an anthropologist, only ever learn by throwing myself into things and so I gowned up in their rather um, frumpy suits and went off and checked out mosquito breeding um, sites and sentinel test zones and yes, learnt about the power of the takeaway container for being the incubator in laboratories for hatching what you find. Um, but what it also drew to my attention was that the mosquitoes were not only shaping what the entomologists did but they were shaping the very design of the city because part of the work of making Darwin habitable came about from the entomologists designating areas which had to be no-go zones. To, to make that <coughs> apparent to you without the power of a PowerPoint, you need to understand that Darwin is pretty much built inside of a swamp. It occupies the only above sea level ground that exists in drowning river valley systems. It's still recovering from the melting of the last ice age, let alone what's happening with global warming. As these deltas are expanding, so too are the mosquito ranges and the wetland areas that these mosquitoes survive in. And the biggest chunk of habitable land is actually owned by Defence for Australia's largest military airfield. So controlling where you can build, etc., etc., is a function of mosquitoes. But what I also discovered that in designing where people could be and where they couldn't be, by the way, they'd also seen off the first four settlements um, in the north, which meant that the places which are part of the indigenous estate to this very day are also owed to the mosquito. But in designing where you can build and where you couldn't build, I discovered that some of the best infrastructure actually came with the newest subdivisions, and those newest subdivisions were pitched towards the low socioeconomic group. So here's the one place in Australia where low socioeconomic subdivisions, low socioeconomic housing estates actually have superior infrastructure care of the mosquito. So I started to see the mosquito a little bit differently. The race blindness of the mosquito, the, so, the indifference to humans was actually in their favour. Now beyond them being superior urban planners, I also want to argue the case for them as ecological agents. They are exquisite. I share Cameron's idea that um, when you start to look at the sophistication of this tiny little insect, they start to enchant. Uh, even the, the ability of the mosquito to hold off disease is, some, is quite a remarkable thing. You know, they don't transmit HIV because the HIV virus can't get past their saliva and what does gets dissolved in their stomach. Point being, if we actually stopped to 
and, and saw the mosquito as an ally and an asset, perhaps we could learn from some of that exquisite biochemistry. I know that the medical fraternity would kill for something so powerful that it is simultaneously a, a, a painkiller and an anticoagulant and very, very localised. So when you've got somebody who's bleeding out and clotting, imagine what you could do with that. If we eradicate mosquitoes, even in the attempt to do it species by species, um, I think we risk jettisoning a lot of potential benefit, biodividend. Now, why do I question that? Because the promise of being able to do something with such powerful discrimination, I think the human record on that is pretty poor. So when we've got a great track record in our attempts to kind of zone in on just the one thing without having tremendous and uncontrolled ramifications on a whole lot of unexpected other things, then I'll be with you. But I just don't trust the humans in this. I'm trusting the mosquitoes in this. I'm just trusting their ability to, yes, um, be resilient and to evolve. Let me talk a little second about that ability to evolve. They are very old species. They've been around since the Jurassic period. We've been around for a nanosecond. Resilience and survival is something that we actually need to start learning more about. Mosquitoes got some powerful lessons in how to do that. Seeing them constantly as just the enemy that needs to be slaughtered in some kind of um, army assault I think stops us seeing the mosquito as the rather extraordinary <coughs> biological, ecological and also aerodynamic insect that it is. Aerodynamic. I'm married to an aeronautical engineer so the aerodynamics of this is really quite intriguing. We have nothing that comes near to the flying abilities of the mosquito. She can lift up after a blood meal now four times her weight what do we have? I think we've got helicopters and I think we've got planes which are now radically contributing to the carbon load. Um, well, what was that about humans being able to exquisitely target the one mosquito? Uh, my trust meter is still... Oh, zero. Janet Fang, appropriately named, Janet Fang actually wrote a piece for the 2010 edition of Nature. She interviewed a whole lot of scientists what would happen if we eradicated mosquitoes was her question. They summed up a whole lot of contributions and then summarily dismissed them. Contributions including um, the niche that they occupy in feeding fish populations, in feeding bird populations, dragonfly populations and in also being pollinators. They operate as bees most of the time. The, the boy mosquito doesn't drink blood. The boy mosquito drinks nectar. The girl mosquito does likewise when she's not worrying about how to energise her egg laying. So we've got bees of the sky at a time when eradicating actual bees is also having radical environmental and agricultural loss and cost across the planet. Hang on. That's right. We're clever enough to just isolate the problematic species. While we're wreaking havoc everywhere else, we're clever enough to do that. Trust meter, still zero. When the scientists were looking at should we, shouldn't we, one of the benefits that they raised and then dismissed was the mosquito's role in herbing the caribou across the Arctic tundra. They isolated this out as something quite dismissible. Turns out the mosquitoes, because of their very short breeding cycle, swarm in such hives that when they can breed, 
that the caribou, in order to kind of escape them, face the wind and head off in the same direction reliably each year. And there are multiple codependencies that go with that reliable routing, that aerial shepherding. Those codependencies include fertilisation of the fragile topsoil thin tundra and it goes to feeding wolves and feeding humans, the hunter-gatherers. The anthropologist in me thinks that's a good thing. I know that the scientists dismissed this irrelevant minority group dependency. I think, hang on, pause for thought. Again, hunter-gatherers are a group that in our brand new anthropocenic world that we could be learning from. Mosquitoes one, hunter-gatherers two. Scientists with military slaughters, trust rating zero. But mosquitoes do more than that still. They're an adaptive species. They do occupy our rubbish zones. They do occupy little turned up flower pots, rubber tyres. They occupy some of those backyards, those slums. They've done that because, yes, we've pushed into their habitats and we've forced them to become like seagulls, like ibises, one of the few species that have been able to adjust to our encroachments. What about, instead of eradicating them, we cleaned up our backyards? What about, instead of naming, as people do, to me, yes, but you're talking about defending the mosquito against the death and illness of vulnerable populations across the world. The vulnerable populations across the world are the ones that are getting malaria and dengue in the main, not really uh, affluent, well-fed white people. A few do. My brother did. He was a copper finding lost tourists in the, in the wilderness, but exceptional. Those vulnerable populations, I would argue, <coughs> don't need mosquito eradication. They need proper infrastructure. They need proper sewerage services. They need drainage systems. These are about distributional equities. They're not about biological slaughterings. And then finally, the, uh, the scientists, when they rate it all up, said, you know what? The thing about eradicating mosquitoes is we would have this massive ecological impact in terms of increased humans. And I failed to hear the denar in that. I also think that in this time of global pressure, in this time of the Anthropocene, that the idea of making space for yet more humans is not exactly an argument against the mosquito. I'm going to leave it there. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I suppose I'm, I'm technically Chris's boss, uh, in at least part of his life, which is why he was being dismissive of my uh, activities. Um, so I, I should say that one of the things that I do do is I'm um, a member of the Médecins Sans Frontières Research Ethics Committee, and um, that means that I have a particular kind of uh, global... Um, set of issues to bring to this conversation. So what I want to do is to um, really do three 
things in my um, comments. One is to talk generally about how we ought to think about uh, Zika, which is the original kind of inspiration for thinking about this event. So thinking about Zika and mosquito-borne disease in general and thinking about the global context, so thinking about things beyond um, Australia. Secondly, I want to say something about the causes of mosquito-borne disease, which picks up on some of the things that you've heard um, with our other two speakers. And then thirdly, I want to come back to the thing which um, I fall asleep uh, thinking about, which is um, public health ethics and how public health ethics might have something to contribute to thinking about these issues. So wearing my MSF hat, of course, um, Zika has not been a real concern for MSF, but Ebola certainly was. And I think one of the, the, the places where I'd like to start is thinking about why it is that WHO reacted so quickly to declare Zika a, a, a um, particular emergency and um, how that came about and technically how we ought to think about emergencies and some of the issues um, and difficulties that there might be in, in sort of deciding what counts as an emergency. So, of course, um, Zika has actually been around for a, a long time, and it was discovered a long time ago as well, 1947. And um, it's really come to the fore in terms of people's consciousness because of the uh, media reporting relating to the microcephaly of infants born as a result of what we are now pretty sure is due to uh, infection of uh, pregnant women with this disease. So apart from that particular case, um, Zika causes relatively mild um, symptoms and is not related to um, sort of devastating outcomes for most individuals. So, that, that, so that's the, um, the reason why this has come to the fore, um, particularly to do with, I think, also thinking about this uh, outbreak in uh, Brazil and how that might relate to issues to do with the, um, the Olympics. And there was some speculation at one point that the World Cup was something which had contributed in the, in the past to transmission of Zika throughout at least South America and the, and the Caribbean. So humans there are um, agents of transmission for this disease. And of course, we should also mention that uh, Zika can be transmitted sexually. And there are a num number of um, countries in the world where cases of Zika um, are coming to the fore as a result of uh, sexual transmission. So we, we, we know quite a lot about the... Um, the, the kind of um, the modes of, of transmission and so on and I'll come back to that uh, later on. So the thing that um, I'd really like to sort of bring to the fore thinking about um, Zika is, is why WHO declared this to be uh, an emergency of international um, concern. So Cameron mentioned uh, dengue and malaria and we think about the, the kind of numbers of, of deaths that are caused by 
um, both disease. Le dengue is, is less involved in deaths but cause devastating uh, suffering to people that have the disease. Um, but we're talking about with dengue fatality of about uh, 1%, um, particularly where there is um, poor access to um, healthcare uh, in response. And malaria is really the, the biggest killer, um, over 400,000 deaths every year, many of them in children under the age of five. Um, and both diseases are, are things which cover a huge number of countries, you know, up to 100 countries in the world. Yellow fever was also mentioned, and, and it's interesting to think there's a, there's a big outbreak of yellow fever at the moment in Africa, particularly Angola and Congo, and um, that hasn't been declared to be an emergency by WHO. So we have a, a hemorrhagic fever that's transmitted by uh, mosquitoes. In that case, we even have a vaccine which can um, help prevent uh, cases of the disease. So with that as a bit of background, thinking about the, the, the sort of global burden of disease, it might be that we can ask questions again about why it is that um, there have been very few diseases or disease outbreaks, epidemics that have been declared to be uh, matters of, of um, a health emergency of international concern, which is the kind of language that's used in the international health regulations. So we have Zika, we have Ebola, which obviously hit um, a much um, sort of more intensely uh, and caused a great number of deaths. And that was a big issue for MSF. Um, we have polio, I think because there was a time when there was a concern that um, polio was going to get out of control again and start spreading to a number of countries. So it was declared to be an emergency because it was held that we're moving towards polio eradication, we're almost there, and we might actually lose this at the last minute if we don't do, do something. And then we have uh, MERS as well, sort of um, something that has particularly hit um, countries like uh, Saudi Arabia, but also been transmitted to, um, to Korea. So it's really interesting when you look at those kinds of cases, what, what is it that allows us to declare, or WHO to declare something as being a public health emergency of international uh, concern? Well, the technical definition of that in the international health regulations is, quote, an extraordinary event which is determined to constitute a public health risk to other states through the international spread of disease and to potentially require a coordinated international response. So I think there are two um, key elements there. One is this idea of transmission across borders. So if something is, is merely of national concern, it can't be declared to be an emergency in this way. And also, there's a requirement that there has to be international response. Now, of course, the international response might just be because something uh, covers a, a border uh, region, but it also, I think, is pushing more towards the idea of um, Ebola and how really Ebola only became under control again once there was a coordinated international response. It required a global solidarity in relation to 
responding to that particular outbreak. So the three countries that were most directly affected in West Africa were unable to actually uh, respond adequately to cope on their own and we needed the action of many countries um, particularly large funding from uh, Europe, the US and Australia. So a question that I would like to ask is how should we actually think about emergencies? What counts as an emergency? Is Zika genuinely an emergency? Or has the declaration by WHO largely been the, the product of uh, media interest in this and a concern about the way that WHO came in for quite severe and in my view justifiable uh, criticism for its, its uh, sloth in relation to responding to the Ebola outbreak at the beginning. It took a, a few months before there was an urgency there and, and a coordinated attempt using the international health regulations as a justification. So was there, was there an, a, a jumping too quickly to declare this an emergency? And what counts as an emergency? What are our priorities? You know, given the fact that uh, 29,000 children die from preventable causes every day, um, 21 children every minute, you know, is, is this what the priority is when we think about uh, global health? Okay, second thing um, I'd like to sort of raise as something for us to think about and, and possibly debate is thinking about the causes. So I think it's really interesting to think about mosquito-borne disease. We tend to blame the mosquito and focus on the mosquito, but we can think about other kinds of um, influences here. And really I want to pick out two. One is uh, climate change and the contribution that that has made to the, um, the development of epidemics related to mosquito-borne disease. So uh, just in the last year or so, we've seen major dengue outbreaks in large parts of the Pacific and, um, and Asia, and they've exploded way beyond um, has been the case in the past. And I think a lot of these are driven by the global rise in temperatures and El Nino um, events. Look at Hawaii and the Philippines and so on, and you can see um, significant increases in, uh, in disease related to mosquitoes. The second element that I would like to bring up is um, where there's been political failure. So we know where mosquitoes breed, we know their, their role in relation to um, these diseases, we know how to prevent it, but there is very often a, a political inertia to actually respond in um, required ways to, uh, to prevent disease from happening. And I'll just give one example of a, of a political failure. Um, this year there was a major um, dengue outbreak in Delhi and India has had a, a, a general um, 
a generally good kind of approach to seeking to prevent uh, dengue outbreaks by removing the sources of breeding. So there has been an inspection regime, um, people going around people's houses and um, open spaces in the urban environment and seeking to remove those places where uh, the relevant mosquitoes breed, breed as Cameron was um, talking about earlier on. So this year there have been 15,000 uh, cases of dengue in, in Delhi and that's the most for over 10 years and the, the reason why I say there's a political failure in this case is that there was actually an argument between the city government and the state government over whose responsibility it was to pay for the inspections and surveillance activities within the, uh, the city of, of Delhi and that led to a delay in the usual implementation of this. So the relatively successful um, prior campaigns of inspection and removal within the city were not carried out on time and I would argue that's an important contribution. It's actually a mosquito flying around there. Okay, so, so the first thing is to thinking, think about mosquito-borne disease in a global context and, and what that means and what it is for something to be an emergency. The second thing is what are the causes um, should we see mosquitoes as clearly mosquitoes can't be held responsible for disease and the third thing that relates to this idea about causes and the importance that we can place upon things like prevention that, that both Cameron and Tess mentioned this idea about uh, taking responsibility for the environment uh, uh, around us so this is where my third point about public health ethics comes in so Medical ethics tends to focus on treatment and some of the ethical issues to do with how um, treatment might generate various kinds of um, harms and how we have to think about the relationship between healthcare professionals and, and patients. Public health ethics, one of the um, interesting things that's different from medical ethics is a focus on prevention. So how should we think about um, using the notion of prevention and the importance of not waiting until a harm occurs and then treating but actually seeking to intervene beforehand to actually reduce the threats from a potential harm and one of the things that public health ethics has tried to do is to articulate the importance of prevention um, looking towards many activities in public health that focus on um, preventing a harm actually emerging and seeking to argue that the notion of prevention is something that we ought to take far more seriously than we, than we do. There ought to be more resources put into um, prevention and also isn't it better to actually seek to prevent a harm from occurring rather than wait for one to emerge. So many of the diseases, um, dengue and so on, there, there are no treatments available. Dengue has some um, relatively successful trials going on at the moment um, for vaccines but um, that would be a form of, of uh, preventive intervention. The second thing is that public health ethics is going to argue that we need to think about a collective approach to our problems. So rather than individualizing our response, saying that it's down to individuals to um, think about protecting themselves, slapping on um, 
DEET to prevent the mosquitoes from biting you or wearing particular clothes or um, having air conditioning which might have a negative impact in the environment as well but um, can reduce the chances of mosquitoes being in your home etc etc those kinds of um, individualized responses are public health ethics is going to argue problematic we ought to think about collective responses how can we as a population as a, as a society actually contribute to reducing um, those those threats and thirdly there's um, the idea of ecological interventions so humans as Tess was mentioning humans are only part of the environment we interact with the environment and um, public health ethics can take that seriously and actually think about well okay we want to reduce threats of harm in relation to health but we also want to think about human place within the environment you know how do we interact what kind of impact does our um, behavior have upon the broader environment and what kind of obligations might come from from that and the fourth thing I was going to mention was um, again public health ethics has a focus on um, issues to do with social justice or environmental justice so um, it's really important again going back to my opening point about the global context here whether we're talking about the global context in relation to Australia being a high income country relative to low income countries or whether we're thinking within Australia itself the notion of equity and health equity is really important here and would be another feature of a public health ethics approach we need to understand who is at greatest risk and that might then lead us to prioritize various kinds of interventions again to protect individuals who perhaps can't protect themselves that might require a coordinated government-led collective intervention to try and reduce those kinds of threats so that's where I will leave things thank you So, uh, thank you to our panellists. If they could please come to the stage area and sit here in descending order of height, please. <laughs> Test towards me. It's nice. <laughs> um, yeah, great. So, now's the opportunity to ask some questions. The idea is basically to have a discussion. So, uh, there's no silly question. Uh, if you have issues or concerns or anything you ever wanted to know about mosquitoes or responses to mosquitoes, now's your chance. Uh, but to get things cracking, I think I will ask the first question as my prerogative of chair. And that would be, um, do we get the mosquitoes that we deserve? Anyone like to tackle that one? Well, I guess it's not a question of do we get the mosquitoes types of mosquitoes we deserve but do we get them where we don't want them or do we get them where we live so is that better? Can everyone hear me? Yeah. So I guess the, so the question about do we get the mosquitoes we deserve I mean we don't change the mosquitoes but we change the opportunities for mosquitoes uh, close to where we live and work and play and so um, as, I'm, I'm, as I mentioned I mean it's the way in which we change the environment 
that changes the abundance of mosquitoes and the consequences it has for us both on a nuisance pest point of view but also on a public health point of view. So whether it's messing with our local wetlands or accumulating old water holding reciprocals around the home uh, or installing rainwater tanks, everything that, do, that don't have screens on them, well that is going to clearly ex change our exposure to mosquitoes and the associated health risks. Okay. Do mosquitoes get the humans they deserve? That's another question. And um, I would argue, you know, poor mosquitoes, they're actually um, responding as best they can to serial encroachments on their habitats in a way that um, we forced other species to do some, and others have suffered with that same reckoning. Um, but also, too, my understanding, Cameron, is that mosquitoes have been shaped by humans, those ones that have co-evolved with humans, including the ones that carry dengue fever, um, have got such delicate uh, bites precisely so that they are less detectable by us. Um, the ones that co-evolved with animals with a thicker hide have a cruder bite. Um, the ones that co-evolved with us, with us as the target, have a more delicate touch. Hmm. Am I right? Yep. Yeah, so Tess is, is right in the sense that those mosquitoes that have now moved into our suburbs are the ones that used to live in the forests and the jungles and feed primarily on primates. And so while we think about uh, pathogens like Zika and dengue and chikungunya virus as being pathogens of humans, they're really humans of viruses of primates. And they would circulate quite happily between primates and the mosquitoes that live in tree holes and leaf axles in the forests. If there were any. If there were any. But as we move into the forests and uh, with either through deforestation or ecotourism, every now and again there are people who do get sick every year. They get their forest dengue or jungle yellow fever as we refer to it. But really it's the mosquitoes that have given up on those forests and moved into the suburbs that really drive these outbreaks now. So in that sense... Yes, we are shifting and changing mosquitoes, or at least, as I said, the habitats available to them. Okay. Lynn. So the question was, should we, if we were able to eradicate a single mosquito, oh, sorry, no, no, if we were able to eradicate a single mosquito, um, would another mosquito move into that ecological niche or would the pathogen that mosquito transmits change in some way? And I guess this is a really interesting question. We know at the moment that the mosquitoes that are found in these artificial habitats in our cities don't keep out other mosquitoes. The local container inhabiting mosquitoes coexist with these exotic mosquitoes quite readily, not without any problem at all. So there's not necessarily an empty ecological niche if we remove those mosquitoes. It's still there, there's a suite of local species. And fortunately those local species aren't very good at transmitting these pathogens. Now the question that I think is far more important is the second half of that, is how, do the, how does a pathogen change? And while I would hate to defend mosquitoes, I, I sort of think of them as innocent bystanders in this because mosquitoes aren't maliciously transmitting these pathogens. The pathogens are taking advantage of the blood-feeding behaviour that's evolved in mosquitoes to get from host to host. And I think one of the things we sort of quickly forget about is how rapidly and effectively pathogens can evolve. And so my concern would be not that a mosquito would move into that niche, but what if dengue or chikungunya or Zika virus decided, why don't I just give up on mosquitoes and 
transmit person to person directly through airborne particles. Cut out the middleman. Then we'd be in far more trouble. Middle woman. A woman from... Sorry, I missed that. Oh, of course. My, my, my mistake. I'm sorry. Thanks for correcting me there, Tess. Do you want to respond to that as well? No. Um, so the question about deci- whether the mosquito decides to change... Decides to transmit directly. Well, I guess if you were... A, a, when I'm in, having trouble sleeping and I've given up on mosquitoes and I think about pathogens, <laughs> I, I think about how they want to get from host to host. And so if you're a virus that likes infecting people, you want to infect other people to continue your survival the same way that any animal on the planet wants to continue its survival. And so then you think about, well, how would I get from one person to another person? And so if we go back to the the viruses that were originally adapted to be spread by mosquitoes, they were kind of thinking, how do they, you know, take Ross River virus, for example, how does it get from one kangaroo to another kangaroo? And one of the ways it could hitchhike on these animals that have adapted to feed on blood of those animals. So when I'm saying decide, I'm really suggesting evolve or adapt. And it's a very convenient way for a virus to get from another host because the virus survives in that mosquito for a couple of weeks. So you're not, when the virus wants, is when the virus is picked up from the mosquito from that person or that kangaroo, it's not just transmitting it to another person the same way that we might transmit a pathogen if we cough on someone. It's being transmitted to all the other animals that that mosquito is biting. So it's an effective way to get not just to one uh, host, but to many hosts. And given it survives in that mosquito for anywhere up to a couple of weeks, there's a lot of other potential animals that I could find myself in. Up the back. The question was, is it possible to actually make the mosquitoes adapt in ways which make them far less hospitable to the pathogens that we care about? No, I think that's your area, Cameron. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's a really great question. And I think that when we're talking about new technologies in modifying mosquitoes to stop their ability to transmit viruses and we're worried about the ecological impact, this is where we look. And other researchers in Australia are already doing this. So in the fight against dengue, there's two main sort of uh, approaches at the moment. You modify mosquitoes so you reduce their longevity or the survivorship. You crash the populations. The alternative approach is that you infect the wild populations of the mosquitoes with a pathogen that blocks their ability to transmit virus. And the Eliminate Dengue project, uh, with funding from Bill and Melinda Gates, has been doing that quite successfully. It's an insect-specific bacteria that is not found in the mosquitoes that spread dengue. But when you introduce it into those mosquitoes in the laboratory, you can release them into the wild. The offspring are born, the mosquito offspring are born infected with the pathogen as well and you're sort of vaccinating the wild population that they're then unable to transmit the dengue virus. So in a sense if you're concerned about the ecological role that mosquitoes play, if you can use an approach like that, you don't change the abundance of mosquitoes in the environment. You'll still have your barbecue disrupted by nuisance biting mosquitoes but they won't be able to pack that punch of dengue transmission. And I think this is one of the new approaches which is probably better than genetic modification as we currently have because it's more sustainable as well. You're letting the mosquitoes do the work for you by spreading the pathogen and maintaining that infection in the wild population. So ideally that's the way forward. We just don't know exactly whether that's going to work just yet. Yes. 
was no, no, no. Yeah, no, I was the one that, yeah, said that, that we could learn, exactly. So, yes, yeah. let's learn. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. So, uh, what happens in the mosquito, so it's a little bit of a tricky, uh, let's talk about mosquito biology, I suppose, is that um, the, the ways, mosquitoes aren't dirty syringes that transmit infected parcels of blood from person to person. There's a relationship between the pathogen and the mosquito. The mosquito itself has to be infected with the pathogen. It's not made sick by the pathogen, but it has to get infected. So the, the route of transmission is infected mozzie spit when she bites you. In the case of a lot of the human pathogens, things like HIV, influenza, hepatitis, they haven't evolved together with mosquitoes and they're not adaptable to mosquitoes. So what that means is that when the mosquito takes in a droplet of blood that's infected with HIV, the virus can't infect the cells of the mosquito. It's blocked. It doesn't have that lock and key type mechanism. And so the virus either dies in the gut of the mosquito or it's excreted in unwanted blood. And so despite many studies in the laboratory trying to get mosquitoes to transmit these viruses, of human concern, it won't happen. It won't happen with Ebola, influenza, hepatitis. So it's more again about the virus not being able to exploit the mosquito than the, the mechanism of the mosquito itself. Yes. I guess I have an ethics question. Um, Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess you said that if you get rid of some of these mosquito-borne diseases, Tess or Angus, I think you'll get different stories. Maybe both can respond. Start with that angle? Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure we should see mosquitoes as being an appropriate means of um, keeping population human populations down. Um, I think what will naturally happen is that um, over time humans adapt to the environmental situation, and if you have fewer child deaths from malaria, then you will tend to have smaller families and, and so on. So um, I, I think there are other issues raised by um, the means of uh, transmission, you know, sexual transmission in relation to Zika, for example, has generated lots of, lots of discussion. And um, there, are, there are groups in South America where culturally, because of the important place of the Catholic Church and attitudes towards contraception and abortion and so on. This is the, the Zika outbreak has actually been used by activists who want to have a, a more um, liberal approach in relation to decisions relating to contraception and uh, abortion. They're, they're using that situation to raise this within um, public debate. So arguing that the law ought to be changed to be more per permissible in, in these kinds of cases. So I think human behavior will adapt to the situation in relation to the, uh, the mosquitoes in this kind of case. And I wouldn't see um, it as reasonable grounds to kind of say, well, isn't it great mosquito-borne disease deaths actually creep keep the human population down and that's actually a good thing you know I think we're capable of adapting um, relatively quickly to those kinds of changes um, socially through our behavior that has other kinds of benefits now of course human population needs to be taken seriously and we need to think about means of interventions and that's part of the sort of more ecological and environmental kind of approach here but 
I, I guess the main thrust of what I was arguing at the end there was that we we basically do need to think more about how the uh, the kind of mosquito-borne disease is at least partly caused by human behavior in various kinds of ways, either political um, lack of interest in, in responding in relation to prevention, but also thinking about climate change and how our incremental impact of, you know, it's not that um, if you drive home tonight in your car rather than catching public transport, you know, there's not going to be an explosion of dengue related to your one single act. And I think we have a problem actually conceptualizing how our minuscule contributions collectively contribute to various kinds of um, bad outcomes. You know, as human beings, we seem to have a fundamental problem in sort of thinking about how our behavior contributes to a general kind of problematic set of behaviors. It's not like um, if I just stab Chris with a, with a knife now, you know, it's clear that I've had a direct impact um, through my behavior, where, whereas behaving in a particular way within an environment, you know, not choosing not to support governments that put money into public health that could then act to remove sites for the breeding of mosquitoes, you know, that's a kind of cumulative impact. And it's much, much harder to trace the kind of causal mechanism. It's not as a result of one person's behavior. And therefore, we have a much more difficult way. Uh, we have a much more difficult way of assuming the responsibility in, the, in those kinds of cases. Tess, do you have anything to add? Um, sure. So the question, as I understand it, was how do you weigh up um, a claim on behalf of planet Earth that less humans is better against um, the moral imperative to care about pain and suffering that happens here and now for those human groups that suffer from mosquitoes or mosquito-borne disease. Yes? Good paraphrase or not? I guess I, guess I was phrasing more as like, I was trying to head along the direction of is there an imperative to also address social and environmental problems simultaneously with doing this? I wasn't trying to advocate for keeping the population down. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, go I am an advocate for keeping the population down, unapologetically. I think that this is something we haven't reckoned with. We keep pretending that um, the planet can sustain us as a species, which is so voracious and patently the evidence is, it's kind of not going to happen. Um, but that's obviously you know, a perspective and an opinion. In terms of balancing social and environmental, I mean, do we have a choice? Is, is, and I think that... Um, what Cameron's just outlined is a slow and final, and thank goodness, reckoning with can we find more uh, nuanced ways of approaching these issues rather than the military arsenal ways in which this has been approached in the past. And I keep using the military metaphor for all sorts of reasons. One, because <laughs> the military have in fact provided many mosquito breeding grounds uh, and in the north, for instance, um, many of the bomb craters from testing of um, bombs post-World War II, just as firing range, have created 
perfect breeding grounds for salt marsh mosquitoes, which have been almost impossible to get rid of because of all the unexploded ordnance sitting underneath them. So that is a real issue up north and they had to do a whole lot of work over a whole lot of years just to deal with that. But also the other approaches, the DDT approaches, etc., come out of a military. This is, these are military concerns because they impact um, military efforts worldwide. So if we kind of look to the political economy of some of this, then the thing that I think is a common refrain, which is these could be approached, should be approached with ecological sensitivity, could be approached, should be approached from social and political equity points of view, rather than that idea that we have an enemy in our sights. Yes, there's a very firm yes in terms of combining those two. Which raises and leaves me the opportunity to try and pin Angus down slightly. Um, so do you think that mosquitoes do deserve to be treated fairly? Are they a subject of justice in our relationship to them around these issues? Okay, that's a, it's a tough question. So the, the standard political philosopher's answer is going to be no because that under most kind of conceptions of um, political justice, the relevant individuals who are of concern are by definition going to be human beings and then they're going to be of equal value. You know, each human being will be of the value of one. Each has deserved respect and protection and, and so on. Mosquitoes aren't going to count more environmental notions of justice might well sort of be interested in thinking about well we oughtn't to think in just in those terms perhaps we need to think more ecologically about how the human beings who have been the subject generally speaking of of discussion and protection in political philosophy are not the only relevant parties those individuals themselves dwell within an ecological context and we need to think about that and what that actually means. So some of the more kind of environmental um, sets of issues that have come out in the discussion are also relevant here. So mosquitoes are not subject to the notions of justice, otherwise they would win out because they have much greater numbers. <laughs> uh, uh, um, and uh, you know, if you applied that kind of approach, there would be reasons to be concerned as, as human beings. We would be protecting environments for the good of mosquitoes, and maybe humans would have to be eradicated uh, as a result. So um, I think we can, we can think about uh, environmental justice considerations without necessarily seeing mosquitoes as being our equals and thinking about as has come out of the discussion as well you know thinking as as we move away from the slightly slightly artificial positions that are established within a, a debate uh, like context we can think about environmentally sensitive ways of seeking to reduce the chances of uh, transmission of disease and focusing on prevention and taking responsibility as humans for um, seeing opportunities to reduce the chances of uh, transmitting that 
those kinds of diseases um, ourselves. Um, that's what environmental justice might well focus on rather than seeing mosquitoes as being the equal bearers of rights and, um, and all that goes with that, which would be extremely problematic, um, I think. For But it, it, it raises kind of really central and important questions for those who work within more traditional notions of uh, political philosophy and conceptions of justice because I think they have a problem seeing any interest or any value in mosquitoes or indeed many other animals. Um, so, you know, why should we... We're going from humans to mosquitoes, but there are many other life forms which are relevant to thinking about these these issues. And, um, you know, we might need to radically rethink our behavior in all kinds of ways to actually be fair in that sense. Okay. Mm. Any other? Yes. Okay, coming back to the ethics and so on, with Ebola you know, these are sort of suddenly, I mean, I know they've been around for a long time, but they sort of come out and have this major effect in a relatively short period of time. So with something like um, Ebola virus and, and how you're talking, have you had discussions or general discussions about how you're going to deal with that at the CBC or the World Health Organization? So before those things come out, so, you know, there might be something else and that's all enough to say. So you don't have to Yes, so, so the, I mean the question that you're raising there is really about preparedness yes. in relation to these kind of dramatic epidemics that come along. So something like malaria is there and we know about it and we know how to uh, reduce the, trans the chances of transmission and so on. And, and that requires a particular kind of set of interventions, you know, maybe infected bed nets and, and, and so on. So, so that's um, for those diseases that are kind of in the background all the time and, and are constant. We, that's largely an issue to do with funding and having the will to actually do something. For the more kind of episodic uh, cases, I think, again, you could make out a case for thinking about many of these diseases as arising, as Cameron was suggesting, from encroachment upon... Um, various kinds of rural areas, forest and, and so on, where these might um, be more um, prevalent. But um, I actually argued in relation to Ebola that really Ebola, again, we can see as being a political, a human failure because the, the countries where the epidemic really um, exploded are very... Um, they have poor healthcare infrastructure. They're post-colonial. There, there was, um, you know, conflict in those places, and WHO, I think, would would now admit that they had failed to really help those nations um, meet their obligations and the the international health regulations. So, if you have good surveillance in countries, as soon as there's an outbreak of one of these diseases, you would know about it. You know, if there was an Ebola outbreak in, um, in Australia tomorrow, you would very quickly be able to, to um, tell that there was such an outbreak and, and respond. And where you have 
good surveillance and good healthcare infrastructure, you can respond quickly and the outbreak is, some people will be infected, but it will be on a much smaller scale. Even something like SARS, for example, um, you know, that was able to be contained because luckily it didn't really get out into large urban um, populations. It was more restricted. So the problems in West Africa are largely the result of pre-existing health inequalities, I would argue, and poor health infrastructure. We know that there will be such outbreaks again in the future, and it's an argument for WHO and other bodies to um, ensure that countries meet their obligations in terms of paying into the, the system to actually health, help support health infrastructure across the world. Um, it's an argument for WHO has a project now very much focused on universal health coverage and that's an argument for again making sure that we have a basic set of health infrastructures that allow us to respond whenever there are these kinds of outbreaks. Yes, Emily. Yeah, it's a really interesting question about if you're actively driving a species to extinction. Um, I mean, first of all, I think it's impossible for us to do it. Even if we did look at the yellow fever mosquito, I just don't think we could do it. There would be cracks and crevices in the landscape where the mosquito would survive. You just couldn't do it. I don't think it's practical. But yeah, I can see a time where, on a city basis, it could be done. And we certainly have eradicated mosquitoes from some parts of the world. Most recently, one of the uh, southern Australian salt marsh mosquitoes was introduced into New Zealand, and it was eradicated from New Zealand through control. But that's sort of a slightly different scenario because it's an exotic mosquito in a place it didn't already exist. Um, in terms of what I think about when, uh, when I'm struggling with this sort of issue is I have to balance the primarily the ecological role of the mosquito to its role in the burden of disease and public health. And that's why I'm always comparing the wetland mosquitoes to the suburban mosquitoes. Now in the wetland situation, we don't have a good handle on exactly what the ecological role is. We know that a lot of animals eat them, but they're probably more an abundant snack food than an essential for any animal in those wetland environments. 
But that doesn't mean that it doesn't play an important role at certain times of the life cycle for some of those animals. So I would not for a second entertain the idea that we could drive some of those wetland mosquitoes to extinction. The, the issue with the yellow fever mosquito and these mosquitoes that are found in these urban areas, the reason I don't believe they have an important ecological role is firstly they're found in water bodies that really support no other organisms. It's basically water-filled rubbish, rubbish for the most part. Secondly, they're not very abundant. And one of the reasons they drive outbreaks of disease is because of that habit of biting many people. So each individual mosquito of the yellow fever mosquito, for instance, it will bite many more people than an Australian salt marsh mosquito, which will just feed until it gets as full and leave. And so it's the biology of the mosquito that predisposes it to be a very effective vector of disease. And so the fact that it's not very abundant, the fact that it's found in a habitat that supports no other substantial organisms that I'm aware of, I would be happy to, to balance that very small ecological impact in eradicating that species with the phenomenal increase it would have in reducing the burden of disease in some of these cities. So I guess that's my process that I run through it. In terms of the biology of the mosquitoes that we might lose from a sort of bioengineering, biomedical kind of access, I think those processes exist in the other mosquitoes. And I don't think that there's anything particularly unique about that one species of mosquito that we couldn't learn from other mosquitoes. And so, sure, we might lose something, but there's a bank of other mozzies that we can study. So overall, I don't think we, it's a significant loss of opportunity there either. Um, yeah, so that's kind of my processes to think through that. It's a, he's just made a fairly compelling argument. I'm not even going to try. But one of the things um, uh, that I think is very interesting in how we talk about this, um, like Angus appealing to the WHO to be able to exercise more political flex uh, in terms of driving um, greater su surveillance. And you mentioned you know, being able to resource that effort and you know, member states being able to kind of contribute properly. But each time we do that, we keep isolating out the political economy of disease to these kind of single kind of digit causal effects. Whereas I see the inequalities within disease as being forgive the pun in a, in a way, far more ecological. And by ecological I mean human ecological, I mean assemblage, I mean codependent. Um, and the systems of, of inequity require that we ask ourselves what are we prepared to give up in order that there is greater equity across the world. And that, to me, starts to get us toward the complexity rather than relying on single instruments. Whether the single instrument is killing off a species or the single instrument is hoping that a universal or a global uh, monitoring system would work, um, seems to me to be radically simplifying the deep politics of global inequality and what's at stake in terms of actually addressing it. And it's the same things that are at stake in actually addressing climate change. Um, and when we start to populate what's at stake, then I think we can have a proper conversation. That might be another night. <laughs> but we have an opportunity for one last question. If anyone has anything that they would like to know before we wrap it up tonight? Well, I think 
that's a good place to end as any, is that the structural inequalities that underpin everything and our complete incapacity to do anything about them at this stage right now. And I'd like very much to thank you all for joining with us. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>